Hello listeners, Kathy Lawless, Life Story Curator, bringing you the podcast series, How Did I Get Here? A series of interviews designed for people just starting out in their careers, people in transition or possibly feeling stuck, and giving them access to the stories of people who have been there, done that, so that they might be inspired with some new ideas or maybe just comforted knowing they are not alone, that everyone starts somewhere and everybody goes through times of transition and times when they feel stuck. I am so excited today to be interviewing my younger sister, Debbie Thiebaud. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. And I've been trying to get her on the show for I don't know how long, but we just haven't made it work, but I'm so excited. And so Debbie is the IT director with the Office of Information Technology for the state of Colorado. And I got to tell you, all the people I've interviewed from the state of Colorado, their titles are this long. <laughs> so obviously that means these are big jobs, right? <laughs> Yes, they are. Well, Debbie, before we get into what it means to be the IT director, um, tell us where, I like to start with the icebreaker questions. So tell us about where you grew up and where you are in the birth order and how do you think that shaped you as an adult? All righty. Well, so uh, we grew up in a small town named Elizabeth here in Colorado. And I think growing up on 40 acres in almost the middle of nowhere at that time certainly shaped me. Um, I am the third of three girls and that absolutely shaped me. Um, I would have to say, I think in my early years, I always saw that as being unfortunate that I was the, the smallest, the youngest, always trying to sort of keep up. But I've definitely reframed that for myself, that it's the fortunate part of my life that I grew up with uh, two older sisters to not only um, look up to, but also I feel like when I was younger, it really was the driving force behind me being so driven because I was not about to get left behind. And, you know, I remember um, mom telling that story about how I never used training wheels on a bicycle because they were just too slow. I just could not keep up. And uh, so, yeah, I think that that's a big part of who who I've been in my life is that I was just not about to get left behind. And so I kind of figured out early on that as long as I was in the front of the pack, I was never going to get left behind. <laughs> That is so, so awesome. I, yeah, so I think that was a driving force for me. I never thought you looked at it as a as a detriment. Um, I don't I don't know. So it's funny. One of my other interviewers talked about she was the oldest, and she, her perception was there was nothing in front of me. I had no obstacles. She was you know I never and she said I think my brother you know he always had me in front of him, so there was always that other component. And I was like, wow, I never really thought of it that way because I didn't feel like older sister was an obstacle. I felt like, you know, Terry was someone to learn from. And, you know, I was observing, I was always like, well, what's going on with her? And how did that work for her? And yeah, very interesting. Cool. Well, thank you for that synopsis. That really gives us an insight. So tell us a little bit about what you did about living in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> what were your activities? So, um, Certainly loved um, being outside. I think that um, the outdoors and, and playing outside was certainly um, a big part of it. Um, the other part of it to me was really about being creative and building things and um, creating, inventing all kinds of crazy gadgets. 
you know quite well all of the crazy things that we built and there was always a better way to build a mousetrap right like there was always something that we were doing whether it was you know building something to tow behind our bicycles or building something to turn off the light because we didn't want to have to be the last one to get out of bed <laughs> or to get into bed and um, so I think that really shaped me very much as the creator that I am and the builder that I am. That and the fact that, um, you know, building that house in Elizabeth and the fact that, um, you know, our, our uh, father wanted to build his own house and just um, sort of knew that he could do that. And so that was part of, of what I loved about growing up was all of these different building things. So I think that has really shaped me in that I'm, I'm very much a creator. Uh, I have both a creative but an analytical side to me as well. So um, I, I feel like that was very much shaped by how we grew up. Yeah, yeah. Living in the house while we were building it, um, you know, it was like everything was an adventure, creating our own fun. Yeah, the, the whole that's why I think maybe it's hard for me to, to uh, understand this electronic world now, you know, with kids not, you know, you know, they're more in the virtual world. We were all, you know, we had to make our own virtual worlds, right? With wood and, <laughs> and uh, other various uh, materials. So very cool. Uh, okay. So uh, are you a introvert, an extrovert or an ambivert? Oh, what's an ambivert? Ambivert would be uh, a combination of both. Like you're, you know, you're ambidextrous. You're an ambivert. Oh, ah, I would have to say I'm definitely an ambivert um, because I think some people would, uh, especially like people at work, I think they would say that I'm much more of an extrovert. Um, but I find for myself that I, I really have to have some internal downtime to get my energy back. So. Um, while I enjoy being with people and I enjoy being out and being at a party or whatever, the way I get my energy or the way I re-energize is really more about time by myself. And, uh, you know, just uh, whether that's reading or painting or walking or biking or whatever, um, just a little bit of that downtime is, is how I get my energy back. So, um, I would definitely say ambivert. Ambivert. Yeah. I learned that term, um, through doing interviews and now I'm, I'm finding I'm that I'm, you know, well, as you know, since I'm the middle child, I'm kind I, of in the middle of everything. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I tend to be, I rate in the middle. So definitely I'm an ambivert. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So on the fun meter scale of one to five, one being couch potato and five being life of the party, where do you put yourself? Wow, that's funny because the first thing that came to mind would be like a five because I really do like being the life of the party. But since I'm being interviewed by the director of entertainment for all of our activities, <laughs> I would have to say um, you're the six of our group. So I would I would rate, yeah, I would probably have to say like a four or a five. Um, I very much like to be in the mix of all of that when when the the party is going on um and i i certainly you know words of wisdom that were uh provided to me at one point when i started really having to network um for jobs uh, and just to get out there and, and network to meet people was to be 
the host and not the guest. So when you go into any environment as a host, you feel very comfortable that all these people are around you and they all, they all know you, right? Like you're the host. And so when you walk in a room with people you don't know, if you put that persona on first, if you say, I'm the host here, not a guest here, it really just changes how you feel about it. And that was huge for me. That really sort of transformed that when I walk in a room, I, I just sort of put that on and it's just way more fun for me, I guess. But I also realized that um, everyone else in the room was just as sort of scared <laughs> as I was when I walked in the room. And so to be the host, it was to extend the olive branch, right? Like to go up to someone and, and offer to, um, to greet them or to start a conversation with them. And I think that just over time really sort of brought me out of, um, out of any shell that I might've had, (laughs) but I don't know that I've ever been accused of being happy, you know, like being an introvert and, and being in a shell in a sense, but internally, I think I always felt that way. Like it, it, I wasn't that comfortable, but now I'd say it's, I'm very comfortable there. Yeah. Well, I, I love that. I, I kind of operated and learned that same thing early on and it made a huge difference, you know, because I think when you walk into a room and you expect people are going to take care of you, then it feels awkward. And then you're like, eh, no one's coming over and I don't know anybody. And I, yeah, just total mind shift change, right? You walk in and then you're like, oh, who am I going to meet? And who's going to be here? And yeah, and how do I welcome them and make them feel comfortable? And then they remember that you made them feel comfortable. They don't even remember what you said, but yeah, very powerful, very powerful. Oh yeah. That reminds me of another really good, um, mod. Somebody said, when you meet somebody, you want that they'll never remember what you said, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And, um, that one has also stuck with me. Yeah. So that's also like with speeches and stuff, right? That, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So on the risk meter scale of one to five, one being low risk taker, five being high, where do you put yourself? Well, I would have to say I'm probably a four right now, but have been a five most of my life. <laughs> I might bump you up to like an eight. Well, <clears throat> that would be just um, as risk is to me a um, it's relative, right? Like to me, I don't see myself as being that much of a risk taker, but to people who are not as risk taker as I am, I would look like a huge risk taker probably. So I think it's all about how you, um, how you sort of perceive yourself. But I do think that um, I have, I have a significant degree of tolerance for risk. I would have to say yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay. Well, I love those questions because that really helps us understand you as a human and kind of how you got to where you are as a human being. So let's talk now about what it means to be the IT director with the Office of Information Technology for the state of Colorado. And then we'll get into how did I get here? Excellent. Uh, Let's see. What does it mean to be the IT director? Um, So actually, there are several of us IT directors for the state. And because it takes more than one to cover the footprint of the size of the state of Colorado. Um, We support an agency or a set of agencies. And right now I support the Colorado Department of Revenue. 
And um, what it really means is that you are ultimately accountable for all of the technology that's used in that department and how sustainable it is, how effective it is. Is it up and running all the time? <laughs> um, which these are, yeah, these are critical systems. I mean, the Department of Revenue not only you know takes in all the taxes. Um, and refunds taxes. So I know people don't want to pay them, but you sure want your refund, <laughs> right? We do all the Department of Revenue does all of the driver's license services and all of the motor vehicle services. So um, not everybody understands like how the services are delivered uh, across the state, right? We just know how we interact with government, but we don't necessarily know it's the Department of Revenue that does you know, the DMV work. Um, most people wouldn't know that uh, the Department of Revenue also has a significant regulatory component to it. Um, and they do enforcement of uh, liquor, gaming activities, um, racing activities. So the horse races that go on, the um, medical, all the marijuana is all regulated and um, managed in a sense through the Department of Revenue. And then I'm missing somebody, oh, the auto industry. So there's um, the, uh, the groups that uh, manage or regulate in a sense uh, auto dealers. So pretty um, diverse group of, oh, and the lottery. The lottery is part of the Department of Revenue. So yeah, it's a, it's a very diverse scope. And I think that's, um, that's part of what makes it so interesting to me is that the state has so many, so many different components to it and um, is such an integral part of all of our lives. And so it, it certainly means a lot to me to know that that's the kind of, of impact in a sense that I'm making being a part of the being a public servant. Yeah. Yeah. You're all those services that we we you know take advantage of but also complain about <laughs> but in some cases love i yeah that's pretty cool that you get to be part of that and and, and it's and you're right and it's just we expect it to work right as yep. citizens and so so thank you for for your service and um so i do have to ask though you know back when we were in elizabeth and you were a youngster uh is this what you wanted to be when you grew up <laughs> You know, my earliest recollection of what I wanted to do was I wanted to be a teacher. And I don't, I, I think, I don't know why, truthfully, other than I always connected so well with the teachers when I was growing up and when I was in school. Um, I, I, I probably had better relationships in a lot of ways with my teachers than I even did my peers. And I think a lot of that was being the youngest born because I was always much more mature than my um, age or my grade in a sense would would um, have lent itself to be just because I was I had these older sisters that were always you know like pulling me forward I feel like compared to um, maybe others but I definitely um, I'm sorry I just completely lost my train of thought what was your question again <laughs> what what did you want to be when you grew up Oh, what was did I want to be when I grew up? I yes. director. Uh, but it's cool that, you know, it's funny. I think about you as when we were younger, because uh, Terry was the teacher. She was always sitting us down and teaching us, right? And so then, but that's what you wanted to be. But I get that you related to your teachers. But, you know, that's probably why you skipped a grade, right? Sure. Is that you were 
ahead of all the other kids. So you were saying to the teachers, give me more work to do, give me more work to do. And they would. And so interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that's the only thing I can recall thinking that I wanted to do. Um, I do remember then I, somehow I figured out like what a teacher was going to make or something. And I was like, oh yeah, that's not going to work for me. Okay. We need a new plan. We need a new plan. We need a new plan, um, which is so sad because obviously, you know, teaching is so critical and so I've had so, uh, so many important teachers in my life that, you know, it's, um, that's a, that's a sad thing to me that, that I was diverted in a sense away at an early age, um, because of that. But, um, I also think that there's such a significant part of me that's a doer that like has to see the results of things come through that just to teach and not to um, be delivering something probably would have been a challenge for me. Um, now, granted, I'm, I'm delivering, you know, education to students in a sense, but I'm, I'm a, there's a part of me that has to check the boxes on, you know, I, this got done, that got done, uh, this got accomplished. Right. And, and I think um, that would have been a challenge for me, but um so, yeah, I don't know where where I shifted away from from teacher. It probably just would have been with the first opportunity that I got to have a job. Yeah. So tell us about that. So let's start getting into the, the how did I get here? So you wanted to be a teacher that started to dissolve. Um, what were your, you know, when you were junior high, high school, and then thinking about college, what were you, what were your plans? Well, first of all, there was no thinking about college. Um, when I was in high school, it just wasn't, I, I don't know why it was never even a thought process for me. And I think a lot of it was, I just wanted to kind of be done with school. I was, I wanted to be out there in the workforce and, um, what happened for me is I was in, uh, a business machines class. I am sure it was called something a little bit different than that, but that's what I remember it being. And we would get these packets and the packet was, um, some, uh, set of documents that you had to do. So some of it was, um, you know, you had to go type something up and then you, some of it was accounting based. And I loved those. I just consumed them. And so talk about going to the teacher and being like, hey, I, could, do you have 17 more of these? Because I just finished those. I was <laughs> just like ravenous towards those. I, to this day, I remember how much fun I loved getting one of those packets and opening up and pulling it out, all the stuff, and having to figure out what did I need to do. Um, with all of this, uh, with all of these things that I was doing. So I definitely had a, a little bit of a uh, exposure to accounting at that point from those little packets and what I liked. Um, I was super good at typing and I was super fast at it, super good at 10 key. So at one time I remember thinking maybe I would be a um, court reporter because I was so fast at all of that. And I remember my, um, my business machines teacher, when I mentioned that to her, she was like, I think you have more that you could do <laughs> because, um, you know, I was just focusing in on what I was good at and what I enjoyed in that moment. 
right? Like I, I had no idea what that really meant, what that job was going to look like. It was just a, you know, oh, I really like this and I'm really good at it. Yeah. Right. That was, well, did she talk to you about other jobs to give you some ideas about that or just kind of say, no, you can do more. And, you know, I don't remember really talking about specific jobs, but we definitely, that's where I got the internship. That's where I got the, the, and they didn't call it an internship. I'm, oh, it's co-op. It was called the co-op program. And um, basically as a junior, but it wasn't until almost the end of my junior year that I could do it because I couldn't drive because I was, you know, a year younger than everybody else as a junior. And so um, you skipped a grade <laughs> because I had skipped a grade. Exactly. And so I think that was part of it too, you know, growing up again, I always go back to this. Okay. The, the third born of the girls, I always told people I waited 21 years to turn 16 because <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm just never going to get there because I was always younger than everyone else. Um, I would have to say as an adult, there was a point where all of a sudden I was no longer the younger one and I was the old one. And I was like, how did this happen? Right? Like talking about how did I get here? I'm like, I was always the youngest of everybody. And now I feel like the old guy, but um, I digress. Um, so back to the, the co-op program, I, um, that was an opportunity that really set my career. And to this day, I wish that every, every young person had that opportunity to um, be able to just go into um, a work environment and have the opportunity that I had. It was an entry-level job. It was a receptionist. Um, you know, how many, how many businesses even have receptionist jobs anymore? They don't. I mean, that was an entry-level job. That was the ability to just get your foot in the door and be able to um, uh, understand what it meant to work and then have an opportunity to move up. And so as a part of the co-op program, that's where I met my first two um, mentors that really set my career, um, set the direction in a sense for my career. So um, do you want me to move on to that or did you yeah. have another question? No, that's, that's where we're going next is, um, you know, then once you get to that, what, you know, what doors opened up and, and, you know, you, uh, you, like you said, you really opened everything up for you. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's funny when you ask those icebreaker questions, because I do think that that I refer back to that a lot, that I had this ravenous appetite to learn. Like um, when I got there, anything that they put in front of me, I would just gobble up. And I, they, they taught me these, um, the, the first mag computer typewriter, which basically was the precursor to an actual computer where you could record your keystrokes on these magnetic cards. And this company that I went to work for was a defense contractor. And they would do these proposals that were hundreds of pages long. And then they would wanna change one word in the middle of one page. And you think now on a computer, it's like, really, that was a problem? But when you think about it, unless you had recorded that whole page, I would have been retyping the entire page. And so you could literally use these magnetic cards to find it on the page, change that one thing, stop it, right? Before it did that thing and then change what you needed to change, it would re-record it and then you would go on. And they, um, I got, I, I just 
took that in and learned it so quickly that they just started teaching me computers and things and, and then ended up that company just closed overnight. So that first co-op opportunity that I had, I, I, that was my first experience at probably 17. Yeah, I was, I was 17 at the time when I walked, I got to work that day, which was kind of in the middle of the day because I was in high school. And so I would go to a class in the morning and then I would drive to work. And I remember so vividly walking up to the front door and everybody was standing outside. And I'm like, what, what's going on? What happened? And they're like, they locked the doors. We're done. We're the company is gone. And of course I'm 17. I'm like, okay, what's the problem? <laughs> right. These people were devastated, right? Like this was their, that was their livelihood. But for me at 17, it was just like, okay, what do I, what do I do? Do I go back to school? <laughs> you know? It's like, I didn't, I just didn't know what to do. And what came of that was that two of the um, executives uh, that were running that branch, um, this Bruce, Bruce Gratton and Paul Robert, sorry, Paul Gratton and Bruce Robinson, I can't believe I transposed their names. Um, they started their own company. They went and negotiated with Boeing to um, start a company um, to try to partner with Boeing to build the B1B, the simulator, the databases for the simulator for the B1B bomber. So if Boeing won, they had a company. If Boeing didn't win that contract for the B1B simulator, then they were going to, they had nothing. And so when you talk about being a risk taker, that was my first startup. So literally, I was invited to be a part of that company with the two owners, Paul and Bruce, and then the chief scientist that they had recruited from this other company um, who looked exactly like Abe Lincoln. Um, I mean, exactly like Abe Lincoln. <laughs> it was, I'll never forget him. And, uh, and me. And the four of us set off to partner with Boeing. And um, they, Boeing did end up winning that contract. And so DCSI was formed. And it was Digital Cartographic Systems Incorporated. And we went from for the four of us basically to over 75 engineers in one year. Wow. It was a four-year contract um, to, to build the databases for the simulator and some of the most cutting edge stuff. I mean, now I look back and it's all the precursor stuff to Google Maps. It was a digital cartography company and you know we were they were building the technology to be able to do that. So that's really cool to think back to those early roots and understand the kind of technology in a sense that I was really engaged in at that point. But they gave me opportunities that were just unheard of. Um, just being a project manager at the age of 19 for a million dollar government subcontract. And, um, you know, I just did it like anything they put in front of me I just stepped into and did it. And I thought that that's the way the world worked. So I think that was both a little bit good, but it also created a little naivete, naivete or however you want to say that for me, that I loved the fact that I had these people that would just put things in front of me and I would just gobble it up. And they were the, they were the reason why I ultimately went to college because after a couple of years there, 
um, one of the owners uh, sat me down and said, you know, you've hit the ceiling, you need an education and you need to go get a degree. And that's the first point where college ever even entered, um, entered my sort of uh, consciousness in a sense. Mm -hmm. So it took me about a year from that point to actually get engaged and to start college. And I um, decided to do college full-time and then work part-time because that startup eventually got sold, um, which was the ultimate goal for them was to build something and then sell it. So um, I was on, I got some stock basically from that company and it allowed me to uh, go to school full-time and just work part-time. And so from there, I just, um, basically I needed a part-time job at that point. So I uh, ended up stumbling into another entrepreneur who was trying to build a company and it worked out perfect that he needed a part-time person who could do what I did. And, uh, um, you know, just in being able to build businesses and help him kind of run the office and those kinds of things. And so that's where I landed then at National Water Systems. So how and, did you find that opportunity? I mean, was it in the newspaper? Cause this was back when opportunities right. were in the newspaper or was it a friend of a friend or what? Actually it was through a temp agency. So I, uh, I knew about working temp and I don't remember how I got introduced to work uh, to, uh, you know, temp services in a sense, but I, uh, I knew that I was really good at all these office machines and all of this stuff. And so um, when I left DCSI, I um, basically went and registered for a temporary agency and just said, I'll just go do temp jobs. And the first temp job, I went to this tortilla company and I was doing, uh, I don't even remember what I was doing for them, some kind of book work or something. And I met this person there and we, you know, struck up a conversation and she said to me, hey, um, I think I have a friend that really needs somebody like you. And so my interview for this, he suggested Teddy's. <laughs> what? <laughs> so this was, this was. Because um, that's the strip club, right? It's strip well. Teddy's wasn't a strip club, but it was, it was pretty close. It was like this bar that, um, that's what I knew it as anyway, was that it was a bar, but we really just, we, we went and we had, um, lunch there, but it was just a place that, that we could go have lunch really. But I remember when he first, you know, she was introducing me to this person that I had never, you know, it was my, it was kind of like a blind interview in a yeah. sense. And so we go and we have lunch and it, there was an instant sort of, um, oh my gosh, yeah, I could really help this, this person. And so um, Dell was a uh, salesman through and through. He had sold water systems um, his whole life and then kind of found himself at odds with the company he'd worked for for like 30 years and decided he was just going to leave and he was going to go start his own water treatment company. And so he just needed somebody that was going to basically run the office for him. And so when I started with him, it was just him and this other uh, kid kind of that he had hired to, to do drafting. And then um, eventually um, we built that into about a $3 million business, $3 million a year. And um, 
that was where I took what I had learned at DCSI and really was, that was the first time where I understood transitional skills. That what I had learned at one place in one industry, I was able to take to a completely different industry, a, a, a similar environment, a startup environment, but a very different space and say, how do I, how do I build this again? Um, how do I build this structure? And um, one of the things that I had built at DCSI was this little homegrown cost accounting system using this off-the-shelf database program. And so at National Water Systems, one of the biggest challenges we had is we were running multiple projects at the same time, but we needed to go order all of these different components. So think of a water treatment system, you're going to be ordering all kinds of plumbing parts. And every job needed very specific parts, but yet we wanted to gain the economies of being able to buy these parts together on one order and then divvy them up to the other pieces because we could get quantity discounts. And so I literally built a little inventory system and tracking system that would allow us to take all of the parts that we needed for one job and then accumulate them onto a PO or parts that we needed for multiple jobs accumulate the like parts together onto these little purchase orders so that we could then purchase in bulk, but then understand when we got the order, what are we going to do with it, right? So literally, I was building this little inventory management system <laughs> that all I knew is what problem I was trying to solve, yeah. right? I had a problem I'm trying to solve, and I'm going to use the tools at my disposal, um, basically, to do so. So I think that was, that was a... a a pivotal point for me in my career with National Water where I really understood that I could take skills from one area and transition them to something completely different. Um, so I, I, I was gaining that construct of transitional skills, I think, at that point. Yeah. And you were building and you were yes. being creative. If we go back to your icebreaker question or answers. So how did you, what were what tools were you using to build a, this inventory management system? Was this this off the shelf accounting thing or did you then get into like Excel or access or any of those kind of tools? It was so, way earlier than that, right? They weren't even out. So when I was first building all this stuff, it was a, it was called smart database. I don't remember who the, um, who the author was of it or who the company was that built it. But it wasn't until several years into my uh, tenure with National Water Systems that I hired this gal who knew all of these Microsoft product, products. And I was still using WordPerfect and um, I can't remember the predecessor to Excel. Lotus. Um, Lotus. Lotus, yes. Mm -hmm. I was using Lotus because that's what I had learned at DCSI. Well, then this gal came in. Her name happened to be Debbie as well. And um, it was just funny at that company. This is just a, a funny side note at that company. There was like, I don't know, maybe seven employees in, in total. And three of us were named Debbie. <laughs> so we had to go by Deb, Debbie and Deborah just to keep ourselves straight. <laughs> yeah. It's just comical. But so she came in and she started teaching me. She was like, oh my gosh, you're going to love this. You really should be using all these Microsoft products and stuff. And, and that, um, 
of course, once I really understood what they could do and how transferable they were from one to the other and everything, I was just, you know, completely in. And then that was, that was where I started to leverage access and access really became a pivotal tool because it was my next generation database. So instead of using this smart database, then, um, started using access and we one of the one of the other systems that I built basically at this national water systems was we needed the ability to quote um, a new project based on all of what we had learned from the prior projects but we needed to be able to do that very quickly so I created these sort of component units that we could build it was almost like a Lego system in a sense that so if we needed a four inch drain assembly for this particular proposal, I knew all of the parts that were needed and the cost of a four inch drain assembly. So I no longer had to say, I need an elbow and a, 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 a valve and you know build it from scratch. I had created these little Lego blocks and we could then just put all these Lego blocks together to be able to quote within a fraction of the time it used to take. The owner, Dell, who did all of the selling, he would come back with these ideas or these opportunities, and then he would sit down for days and go through and meticulously try to quote all of this stuff. And I'm like, we can't live like this. We're never going to be able to, you know, we're not going to go very far like this. So I componentized all of this. I took all of this prior information that we had or um and in some cases it was it was even refreshing with the current data because it was it was a part of this other po system that i had built so we were able to be able to say okay well i understand what it's costing us today to go get a say four inch drain assembly and so that's feeding into now the new quotes that we're doing and um so it was really when i look at that environment and basically having to understand how do you build systems across an entire organization that feed each other and are interrelated to each other you know that's really where i learned all of that was um, having to create something that would make that business function much more effectively um and it was pretty cool if i don't say so myself yeah i guess hello <laughs> i hear i thought i knew your history oh my gosh so um a couple questions here. So how old were you? Oh, like 24 I, at this point? I was early 20s. Yeah. So yeah, I was probably when I left DCSI, I was 22, maybe. Um, so this was in my the period probably between 22 and 26, something like that. Um, I left creating all these systems when there isn't really any programming or IT or right. anything like that. So then how did you, you but you know, you started this, this segment by saying, I needed a part-time job so I could go to college full-time. How did that play out? This sounds like a full-time job. Well, no, I was building all of this pretty much when I was part-time. Um, and then when I graduated from college, when I was 25, um, Dell asked me to be his vice president. He you know, came to me and he's like, you have been such a big part of this. You know, I really want you to stay on when you graduate and I, I want you to be a vice president. And we had, um, we had built the company up to where it was at least semi-sustainable at this point, because, you know, there was a lot of rocky periods in here where, you know, it was Dell and I and this other gal, Deb, who was the lead engineer person. And, um, 
we we struggled to keep the he, you know the three of us afloat for a while because it was very much you know kind of hit or miss with Dell had to do all the selling he had to go out and do the selling but then he also had to come deliver the product yeah. right it's like these are these are difficult times for a small business to try to you know grow but um he did we ended up growing to where there was about seven or eight um uh we had several engineers we had some draftsmen that worked for us um i learned autocad and i was drafting um technical drawings at one point because <laughs> in, well, of course you did because you have to learn everything <laughs> Well, and in a small business, you're wearing every hat. Like yeah. my job, Dell sold and came back with the opportunities. And it was my job to do everything else. I mean, literally, that's what I did is I just ran everything else so he could go out and sell. And then he could go do the the uh, installations. Um, his brother kind of helped um, do some of the the installations as well with him. But um, that's pretty much what I did is I ran the business for him. And um, so would then, you say you were like the chief operating officer, you were vice president, but it sounds like you were probably, you were HR, you were IT, it sounds like you were accounting. Were you also CFO? Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, I did all of the books. I, I literally did, the, the title that he had come up with was vice president of finance and operations. Um, because it basically, it, it did, I mean, he went out, that, I, that's the best way I could describe it is Dell was on the road all the time because he was selling and doing installations and basically all the rest of what happened to make all of that happen, I, I was running and making it happen and building systems and stuff in the, in the background. Um, and then the ultimate, uh, what ended up happening is he ended up selling the business to um, a gentleman, a water company, basically out of Salt Lake City. And um, the, the real struggle of that was that that gentleman did not, he felt like he had an operations crew and set of systems and stuff that was far superior to the ones for National Water System. And what he really wanted is he wanted the sales and he wanted the sales and the clients. And so he basically wanted Dell and I, um, and he felt like he didn't need any of the rest of the staff. And so he ended up um, uh, basically eliminating the operational um, group, in a sense, in the, in the Denver space, in a sense. And then my role became a sales manager within his larger organization. And um, I was not... Um, I was not impressed when I actually saw the state of his operations and saw it run. And I'm like, you have no idea what you just dismantled. <laughs> <laughs> we actually could deliver on this. So um, that was a pivotal point. So you talk about pivotal moments in my life. Um, right before that is when I had been introduced to the Niken products. And then that's where my life started to take a different twist. And here so, where that all that other risk taking. Yep. And all the confidence yes. and you can do anything, right? And you can look at what you just, you continue to step in and do. So, okay. So now you're stepping into entrepreneurial, even though right. we were in startups before, which is entrepreneurial, but not the same as um, owning your own business, right? 
Right. Very much so. I mean, I always felt like being number two was very comfortable and familiar for me because that's pretty much what I was in the other two companies. But, um, you know, stepping out on my own was definitely, um, you know, a big risk. But um, I look back now and it was like a master's degree in um, selling is really what I learned and it was extremely painful. <laughs> I, it's one of those very bitter, semi-sweet um, parts of my career <laughs> that um, I would have to say the best thing that it taught me was um, just this, this inner resiliency of divorcing my ego of who I was as this um, I wouldn't even say corporate but just this this um, uh, boy I'm struggling to to describe that my the, my ego of my position as a vice president was who I was. That was like, that's, that's what propped up my self-esteem was that I was this vice president. And then overnight I went to being not that. And I'm having to beat the streets and doing cold calling and having to really just dig deep every day to stick it out. But because, you know, I'm also not a quitter. That was my you know, as hard as it was and as um, financially challenging and everything as it was, there was always this thing in the back of my mind that just said, you know, you're just not a quitter. You're, you know, if you could just do X, you could make this work. If you would just do Y, you would make this work. And um, it really taught me so much about uh, myself. And and the the final piece was really about I have to learn to sell. I have to understand how do I sell. And I took some classes around um, selling and um, got introduced to a, um, a, a set of stuff called Monopolize Your Marketplace and the Sandler sales system. And it was very much about, it, it really registered with me. It, it very much was about selling with integrity and how do you really help people um, sort of dis uncover and discover what it is that they want, not um, you're, you're selling them on something. Because I was really struggling with this, oh my gosh, I feel like a used car salesman every day. And, you know, that's a bad stereotype. So I don't want to make used car salespeople feel bad because it's not, they're great people. I worked in the car, you know, I worked in the, in the motorcycle industry for a long time. So I don't want to offend anyone in the sense, but I just had this icky feeling um, about who I was or what I was doing. And it really changed that a hundred percent for me. I have such an appreciation for people who do sales and people who, and, and the hard, hard work that it is every day to get really good at it, but also just to do it every day. It's, um, I, I learned through that, that I don't naturally live in that space. I, I, 
always talk about this personality spectrum that I had sort of made up in my own head. Maybe somebody showed it to me, but um, that if you took an accountant on one end and you had a salesperson, they would be on the opposite end of a personality spectrum. That accountants are very, you know, everything's, everything's detailed. Everything has to tick and tie and balance. And if you talk to a salesperson, well, rules, they're more like guidelines, right? <laughs> there's, there's just really, you know, such an op a polar opposite to those. And the way I always described myself is I was more in the middle, but I leaned to the sales side. And for me to do outside sales or, or you know, full commission sales, I had to push myself every single day all the way out there to the other end of that spectrum. And so it was work to go do that. It wasn't fun for me. It wasn't something that came you know, very naturally in a sense to me. And so I learned that about myself, that it was better for me to not have to do that because it was just so stressful. And, and it's funny, that was hard. I'm listening to your story, Debbie, and it's, you know, it's so funny. You know, your first two roles were, you just gobbled it up and you learned new things and you applied them and you were successful and you had all of this, you know, great uh, accomplishments and you could check all these boxes, right? And then you reach this point, you're like, well, again, I can learn anything. I got transferable skills, right? And then you go onto the sales side and you're like, I can learn anything. And then it's so flipping hard. And it just kind of shows that sometimes there's things that you don't need to do, right? But you, you kind of, I'm not a quitter. So I'm going to stick this out and I'm going to learn it. And you did all the right things to learn it, but still it was so dang hard. And I remember working with a coach one time and she's like, well, you know, think of things about whether they're heavy or light. And, you know, you don't have to do the heavy stuff. You know, you might think, well, you know, cause I was in a job search at the time. If you're looking at this job and right away it feels heavy, why even, why even <laughs> go there? But, you know, sometimes we get pulled into the heavy stuff because, you know, we got good at it or there's another reason, but anyway, very interesting. So, well, we do need to start kind of getting to where you are today. Um, but this is fascinating because, you know, I'm seeing this theme of technology, of, you know, learning and just gobbling things up. And, um, but also you have to be contributing and you have to be part of a, a team too. You know, you mentioned that VP title was feeding your ego, but it wasn't just the title. I think it was that you got to do all that stuff, right? There was a variety to your, to your work and to your value and what you brought. So interesting, interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the, what I learned in those very formative years and, and what I, um, when I think back now, pushing myself out to the sales side is what rounded me out because I had all this operational, I had all this accounting background, but what I didn't really have was this real appreciation or understanding of the sales side of a business. And, uh, that really is what's funny. And it's a great transition into my next part of my, um, story in a sense is that I eventually, you know, left working for myself when I got pregnant with my first child. And I was like, okay, I don't want the stress now that I, you know, I'm praying to have my first child. And I went to work for Excel Motorsports. And again, it was, I needed a job. I decided I needed a job and a job was there. Like literally I made a phone call and you asked about, was it in the paper? The job was in the paper. So I made a phone call and this top got right to the person. When, when does that ever happen? <laughs> like, I made a phone call. I get to the person 
Who is the hiring manager? We have a conversation. He says to me, you think with both sides of your brain, can you come talk to me right now? And I went down and had the conversation. And the next day I had the job wow. and it was fuller wow. for the, the motorsport for his uh, motorsports dealerships. And there was, they had three of them at the time and they had grown very quickly and they really needed somebody who, who had my kind of skills. And I eventually took that role of, uh, I worked there for a couple of years through both births of my children. And then again, took a risk and said, you know, I'm really kind of bored here. Cause I would, I would get bored. And then I'm like, where's my next dealership? Where's the next dealership? And they weren't ready for a variety of reasons. And so after the birth of my second child, then I decided that um, I was going to go look for something else. I was going to take some time off to um, have some time with my uh, children. And then I was going to look for something else. And so I just quit. And, um, you know, for me, that was very logical. I'm like, well, the next thing will show up. And manifested things before, right? Before, exactly. And so within a couple of months, then I um, got the opportunity to go consult at another motorcycle dealership to help them with this system that I had learned. So there's a software system that the uh, most of the motorcycle dealerships use the same software system. And so I spent eight years then um, basically running my own niche consulting business. And um, I happened to be the sort of only person who really knew how to, how to set these systems up um, and make them work for what the owners needed in order to contribute into or be a part of these other types of, um, it was a financial club basically that you could be a part of uh, to help you grow your business. Um, I don't even know if they're still around today, but um, they were a huge, huge part of the motorcycle industry and the car industries for many years. And um, so I did that for eight years and every time I needed a client, every time I needed the next person to call, the phone would ring. And so I just went on this, this road, right? That it was like, whenever I needed something, what I needed appeared. And it's not, it was not all, you know, puppies and sunshine as it might sound in a sense, but it just worked. Like I, that's, I, I, I would take a risk and it would work. And then 2008 happened. Ah. <laughs> and in 2008, when the recession hit overnight, I can remember literally it was October of 2007, um, or maybe it was 2008. I don't remember which year. And literally the phone just stopped ringing. Like literally it just stopped. And that was the first time I ever struggled to find a job because now I'm at this point where I'm, I'm 25 years into my career and I don't know what I'm going to do next. And I don't know what I should do next. Should I go get a master's? I can't afford it. Oh, by the way, I'm now broke because I haven't, you know, my, my career and everything just hadn't, um, I wasn't thinking about where I needed to be in a sense financially, because I was just going with what was going on in my life. And I think a lot of people might relate to that. <laughs> it's like, we just go, right? Like you just go and here's the next thing. And then you go and do the next thing. And it wasn't purposeful. It was just 
this is the next thing that's coming up in my life. And then I had kids and then the kids just consume your life. And um, so that's what led me to the state in 2008. Which, I, you know, it's funny because I was sitting here just thinking, man, with all of this startup and entrepreneurial, a lot of freedom, a lot of, and then now you're working for a government. It's like, wow, this is, I'm very excited to hear about that transition. <laughs> yeah, so I got the, um, uh, I, it was one of the only interviews I got. So this was, this was very hard times when you're throwing, you know, it's the recession, putting out interviews every day, you're on unemployment, which makes you feel very, um, it's challenging, like to get your head in the right space. It's very challenging. And I really have such an appreciation. It was just a completely different experience for me than everything else. Right. Like I, anything else I needed in life, it just manifested. And at this moment, I find myself with two children, the major breadwinner for the family. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And, um, so I would have to say a very pivotal moment was the um, seminar that that we took about being a leader. Hmm. And that definitely was a huge uh, shift for me and just understanding that I needed to just go be cause in the matter. That, you know, leadership wasn't this, this thing in my head of what I looked like or whether I was wearing a suit or any of that. It was really just about go be cause in the matter. And that probably had something to do with me then getting the job, landing the job, I feel like, because it just kind of brought things together in the universe. But I had all these stereotypes of what working for the government was going to look like. I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose my freedom. How am I going to take my kids to school? How am I going to, you know, I'm just going to have, I'm just going to be in this box, right? Like I'm just going to be a number in somebody's giant scheme of things and I'm going to be in a box. That was really kind of, you know, what my original stereotype was. When I got there, it was all but that. It was all this, I had all this creativity, I had all this space to be in, but a lot of it was because I had landed at the Office of Information Technology, which was just starting up. So I find myself literally landing in government in a giant startup. And what's and, the budget? I have to laugh because, you know, what, how many billions of dollars is the budget that you, of this startup now that you're in? Oh yeah. Well, they went from, boy, I'm trying to remember. They, um, I think of it more in terms of just employees. So there was only a couple hundred employees in the original group and it was just like a little mainframe shop. And then, um, right when I came in, in 2009, they, the consolidation took all of the IT departments out of the agencies and dropped them into emerge them. So it's like a reverse merger. The little guy, got merged into by all these other people. And we went from like 200 employees to like 900 employees in one budget session, wow. basically. Wow. And, you know, so the number of, it's just the number of zeros behind it, right? Yeah. Like that's what we talk about is, it's all just a scale of, you know, what you're, what I was used to. And um, so one, I felt very at home and um, I really, my family grew up in the state. Like that's why I think about it is that my kids were seven and nine when I started at the state and they're now 20 and 22. And, uh, you know, so I, I look at those early years in the state um, as really grounding me. Like there was a point I, I, that was such a pivotal point for me of saying here I'd been this risk taker all of my 
you know, early career. And now I've, you know, I've, I've got to put stability there for my family, right? Like that's that this realization of, oh, it's not just about me anymore, right? Like it's not just about, you know, like whatever we wanted to do, we've got these little people we have to take care of. And um, so that was a big thing of just putting in stability. And so I came into the state from a budget perspective. I leveraged my, my background in finance and basically it was a financial model that I had built as a, as a um, volunteer endeavor for the kids' school to help the school understand how it was going to buy its building and stuff. It was that financial model that got me the job because I'm, I'm telling, I put that in my resume that I had done this. So, you know, a big um, uh, suggestion I would have in a sense for those people, uh, you know, looking or listening to this is definitely include things that you've done that maybe weren't a part of a job, right? Like if, if there, there could be pivotal things that you've done that um, are really very important to what you know or what you need in a sense to get that next job. And um, it was very much, you know, that it was the reason they wanted to talk to me because I had put it on my resume because what they needed was they needed a budget analyst that could do rate setting basically for this new organization. And so I came in through budget. I spent a couple of years in, in budget. I then, um, quickly figured out I was going to have to figure out how to navigate this landscape of this large organization because I was bored. And I'm like, I, I have got to figure out how I can get back to a place where I'm, um, I'm just doing more because I, I, I just really got itchy fast. And so I moved into a role to be a business manager. It was a brand new role. So it fit me perfectly because it was like, you know, here, go make what you want to of this role. And what I really need is it was a division of the organization that had 400 people and 400 of the 900. And what they needed was somebody who was really going to kind of like run, run the internals of the division and handle all the budgeting and everything that went along with it. And of course, that was just right up my alley. It was perfect for me. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then I got recruited back to finance, spent a couple of years um, building, again, building some teams, all kinds of systems and processes and stuff inside of finance. And then at that point, I was really at a pivotal point in the state. I really didn't I, I wanted to do some other things inside of finance and really thought that that was the direction I needed to keep going because of my background. But I had a very, very good friend and mentor who recruited me out to be an IT director. And I never would have thought that the role would fit me so well, but an IT director is very much like running a business. You know, we're, while we focus on the technology, our responsibility, we have, um, it takes a financial mind to understand how to do, you know, how are you budgeting for what you're going to do in your technology? It's, it's all of the same things of running a business. And so it really, um, it really fit me like a glove. And I, I absolutely love the, the combination of running a business and having the relationship with the agency, as well as, you know, I have this amazing group of people um, who do and run all of the technology um, and the, the team of people that it takes to do that for the state are just amazing heroes. Like there's a lot of amazing people <laughs> who make this function every day. <laughs> um, 
So the um, so I've been doing that now for six years. Um, coming up on my twelfth year in the state in July will be my uh, anniversary at the state, and um, I spent I've been at at uh, the Department of Revenue now for almost two years supporting them. And then I supported the Department of Labor and Employment for four years before that, um, really helping to overhaul the unemployment insurance system. So, you know, some, some really, really cool stuff that we've done in the state. Wow. Well, I look at all the industries. Let's see, you were in the Department of Defense, then you were in the water industry, then you were in the health, kind of the health and, and self-care industry, then the motorcycle industry and then now you're working for the state and it touches every industry <laughs> and it, it touches does. all of like IT. Yeah. yeah i would consider it the it industry but you're right like all of the 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 scope of what government does for us is just monumental and i think we as citizens just don't have an appreciation until you work in it or you really you know are a part of it to understand the the magnitude of services that we depend on, yeah, that are that are um, you know public employees basically deliver, yeah. and it is it is pretty it is pretty remarkable actually. We could do an entire series on just <laughs> um, let's learn about what all the services are. Right? Services are yeah, I know it's pretty amazing. I've I've got such an, a greater appreciation because of our relationship and hearing from you firsthand and for some of the other women that I know. Uh, who work at the state. So, but Debbie, I got to tell you, I could, we could keep going all afternoon, well, obviously. I could just keep, you know, as I, this is our normal conversation. Um, but we do have to start wrapping up. So I have kind of two closing questions. The first one is, when you look back on your career, what do you think has served you best? You know, the thing that keeps coming up for me is my gut. Oh. Um, I would also have to say it's a double-edged sword. Ah, <laughs> it served you best, but then it hasn't served you. Okay. I think that um, it has made me who I am. The risks that I took early in my life certainly made me the person that I am and the, the leader, in a sense, that I am. Um, it also, uh, I look back now and I'm like, wow, that was pretty risky to just do that, right? Like, so that's where I feel like, you know, but I also see that that that's what really serves me well is when I when I contemplate next moves or, or uh, you know, where should I go in my career? Should I leave this stage? Should I stay at the stage? Should I take this promotion? Should I, you know, those things. Ultimately, it's my gut check about it. Ultimately, it's how do I feel about how that's, um, do, does it give me energy to think about it? To your point, the person who told you um, if it feels heavy, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's it's really about does it give me energy to think about it? Does it or when I think about it, do I, you know, like lose energy? Do I do I just pause in a sense? Um, and so I, I would say that's what's probably served me best has been the gut. Has been the gut. Okay. What about any words of wisdom? Did you have any quotes over the years or maybe a mentor said something to you that just resonated that, you know, really guided you and really, uh, you know, helped you move forward in tough times? 
Well, I would have to say there's there's two for me. Um, one is definitely the um, that course that we took around leadership and just being cause in the matter, reframing leadership for myself so that I could have access to my leadership and recognize it in everywhere and everyone and myself all the time was huge. Mm -hmm. Just recognizing that simply being cause in the matter, causing something to happen that wouldn't have ordinarily have happened if you didn't do something and be cause in that matter, um, really gives me so much energy when I, I that it's just a, a such a driving force in a sense for me today. I have I have instilled it in my kids. I talk about it at work. I, you know, it's like, I really just, that's a huge force for me. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't I, matter what your title is, right? I mean, that right. really kind of gets you out of that. It doesn't matter the ego, the title, the, the, all of that. It's, you know, how can I be causing the matter? And am I in a position to do that right here and now? And you do it. And I see it all the time. And so awesome. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's okay. And the one other thing is actually something you said to me. So oh. there was a there was a point um, where we were. Uh, it's really about having a blind spot, a a spot that I didn't know that I didn't know about myself, and that's why it was so powerful to me. And um, it was when I was complaining about, or maybe not complaining, but um, just. Uh, talking about how I was not going to be controlled by um, chasing money, that that's why I, you know, didn't feel like I had money in my life or I was struggling or whatever is that I just, um, I, I was not going to be, I was not going to chase the ever loving dollar and, you know, leave, leave my life behind kind of in the process. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm not going to be controlled by money. And you astutely said to me, but you're willing to be controlled by the lack of it. <laughs> and that was a hugely pivotal moment. That was a complete blindside for me that I didn't realize that I was literally being controlled by the lack of money because of what that was causing for me and my family. And I, and I wanted to share that today because I think that it's such a pivotal moment and it could be something that's occurring for other people, whether it's that exact thing, whether it's that story that you've been telling yourself that you don't even realize that that story is what's playing out for you mm -hmm. in your life is I was all the choices I was making, all of the, um, all of the opportunities that I was not allowing to come into my life because I had made a decision that those were wrong. And I was, and I was, forcing myself in a sense into this scenario. So I just, um, it was very much a pivotal moment for me. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for not only being such a, a, an amazing sister, but just for being such an amazing mentor to me all of my life, you and Terry as well. Wow. Now you got me all teary. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. That is so important. You know, in all of these interviews, um, mindset has been so important you know people talk about they had to change a mindset about certain things and uh you know it, the money thing hasn't always been the primary thing um but it's it's a variety of things that we have to change our mindset about and you certainly have helped me change mindset oh my gosh i can't tell you how many times i reference you 
in all of the episodes that I go go through. So anyway, well, gosh, Debbie, this is so wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story. And um, I just, you know, there's so many gems in there that people are going to, I think, take away from, because I think you can be, you know, there's so many relatable parts in there. Um, you're manifesting all these wonderful things, but then you were kind of blocking all these wonderful things. And you don't see that maybe uh, until you look back. So, so I hope you enjoyed today. And uh, listeners, if you enjoyed today's interview, please subscribe below so that you'll be alerted as other interviews are published. And if you have any questions for me or for Debbie, uh, you can re reach out to me on my website, lifestorycurator.com, which is where I post the interviews and I'll post uh, Debbie's information should you want to get in, in touch with her. But anyway, uh, wonderful storytelling. I, I love uh, uh, giving access to people to these stories uh, because, you know, from the outside, if we looked at your LinkedIn profile, it's going to be all these successes, right? And then now to hear, well, yeah, it wasn't all puppies and rainbows, right? And there, was, there was some struggle in there. So thank you again for sharing. And on that note, listeners, stay safe, stay well, and let's keep sharing those stories. Thank you, Kathy.